0: Like you hear people all the time, or at least I, I hear people all the time saying shit like, man, like producing music, it used to be so fun. You know, back in the day, I used to just get lost in the source for like hours and just like making crazy shit. And now these days, it just feels like such a slog. And like, I can't even like sit down to write music anymore. It's like such a pain in the ass. You know, I'm like so uninspired, all this kind of shit. And I feel like part of that is for that reason, because they just like forget to, to, to explore, you know, and I feel like that exploratory sort of childlike uh, discovery process is, is uh, most of the fun.
1: Absolutely, uh, that's that's exactly why. Yeah, I do the chip music thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> as my totally. limitation, creative limitation, and
2: yeah. Keep it Welcome to the Mr. Bill podcast. I'm Anand Harsh, editor-in-chief of TheUns.com, Bill's manager, and the Hagrid to Mr. Bill's Harry Potter. If you want to know how Bill got a lightning bolt scar on his forehead, you'll just have to go to the Kill Bill workshop in D.C. on June 1st. More on that in a bit, but let me just say that the Kill Bill sounds emanating from my basement right now where Chris and Bill are deep in the studio are, uh, are very exciting. Today's guest is retro gaming enthusiast C-Trix, who is best known for crazy live performances incorporating original tunes played live from a combo of dusty Nintendos, Game Boys, Ataris, Segas, Neo Geos, Amigas, and more. He also has a super popular YouTube channel called Debug Live, which centers around the budget home studio gear of the 80s and 90s. Endlessly fascinating stuff for old fogies like myself, but what is old is new again. Everything is on the website, tutorials, sample packs, tour dates, and this podcast. Go to live.mrbillstunes.com for absolutely everything Mr. Bill. Kill Bill plays Flash in D.C. on Wednesday, June 1st. In addition to solo sets, the guys are also doing a workshop at 7 p.m. Space is limited. Bill and Chris will be cracking open their Kill Bill project files and giving their fellow producers a look at the gooey innards of their insane Ableton sessions. And you can find out about that scar. On June 3rd, Bill is the special guest at Tribal Connection in Ohio. In July, he's at Hampton motherfucking Coliseum with Ganja White Knight and a bunch of their buds that's july 8th and 9th and on august 12th you can catch a solo bill idm set and kill bill performance at firelights in pennsylvania tickets at linktree slash mr bill's tunes there you have it enjoy bill's chat with c trix
0: Hey you're listening to the Mr Bill podcast. Hey you're listening to the Mr Bill podcast. Hey you are listening to the Mr Bill podcast. Hey you're 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 listening to the Mr Bill podcast.
1: Hey you're listening to the Mr Bill podcast. Hey you're listening to the
2: Mr Bill podcast. Hey you're listening to the Mr Bill podcast.
0: so man yeah awesome to connect thanks for coming on the podcast for starters um uh there's going to be like a whole intro and stuff before this so you you will have been well and truly introduced uh by this point of the chat so people should know who you are but um for people who don't know who you are uh, would you like to explain uh who, who you are and what it is that you do
1: yeah, for sure. My name is Chris. Um, I uh, play music and do YouTube content under the alias of um, C-Tricks um, with a YouTube channel called Debug Live. And um, I'm, I'm very interested in the whole concept of <clears throat> taking, I guess, the minimal viable systems that could make audio uh, that were cheap in the 1980s and uh, getting music out of them. So we, we're really talking about like home gaming systems of you know the 1980s and early 1990s so everything from the like the in fact the '70s as well the Atari 2600 and the the original Nintendo and the riga the original Mega Drives and uh, or Genesis if you're in the states and uh, things like Game Boys and um, yeah I mean some of it is using original software and original like chips and things like that some of it is using uh, you know plug-in cartridges that allow you to uh, uh, to sort of take things a bit further but I always try to make uh, music you know using the devices fairly purely and and I guess that ex- exploration of um, of uh, those devices uh, leads to all kinds of adventures in in audio <laughs> discovery and, and music. Uh, so it's it's good fun, right? So the whole expedition
0: is basically take these really old devices like Sega Mega Drives, whatnot, and and just try to make music with those as a creative limitation, basically.
1: Yeah, um, and and my vibe is always to try to get it so that I can I can put it on a cartridge that is the plane as they used to be manufactured cartridges. Put it in the system, fire it up, and it will start playing. Nice. Um, sometimes with you know interactivity, so you can jump between the different parts and and you know play it in a live setting as well. So.
0: Damn, yeah, I've seen some videos of you playing on YouTube, um, where you have like some old CRT monitor and like some older, you know, screen. I I have no idea what the hell is going on in this kind of scene. I mean, I know like a very little amount about um, demo scene, um, but but yeah, you you'll have to educate me. So, um, are, you, are you a part of what what you would call the demo scene?
1: I actually run Australia's uh, sort of main demo party, I guess you'd call it, that's been running for 16 years. So uh, myself right. and a friend have been running that uh, for ages. So yeah, uh, that's uh, a big collaboration of, of people who, have, I mean, it's been happening since almost the computer clubs of the 1980s. You know, when you used to own a computer, it was, it was something, it was a bit like owning a 3D printer or something like, you know, you're in a mm. special kind of <laughs> group of people and... Um, Uh, and you'd get together and you'd compare notes and you'd show each other what you'd done and and things like that. A bit like modular, uh, people who use modulars. It's that very similar kind of vibe. And um, so, yeah, you'd come together with your computers and you'd show each other what you could do and what you'd learnt and and it sort of broke into this uh, scene where... um, there started being copy parties where people would start copying stuff to each other. But then people would put uh, on the start of their copied release, they would put like a little thing. Oh, this was cracked by like ACA <laughs> or something, like, or Australian Crackers United or something. You'd have your intro screen with the like music that played at the start, uh, and you'd you place that on the front of the um, uh, you know on the front of the crack, so that when you distributed that the game, uh, you know you you'd have this that would come up before the game played. Um, And I guess that spurred into its own set of uh, tricks of, well, how far can we take this? And it hit the point where it wasn't just a little intro on the start of a piece of crack software anymore. It was its own art form. And it was, how far can we take the computer? And if you're not writing a game or making something that's interactive, you can do a lot more tricks and a lot more things with your graphics and with your sound um, that will only kind of play once in that situation, uh, teetering on the edge of using all your computer power, um, but it's it's using tricks that maybe you wouldn't normally use, and there's some undocumented stuff on a lot of machines that you can jump into, or things that are very touchy to use in everyday programming, but that could do amazing graphical things that look 3D and and. Push the capability far beyond what you'd ever imagine the computer could do, but it's a lot of it is programmable trickery that's in a very sort of fragile ecosystem of pushing a computer to the edge. So that spanned a lot of computer systems. I mean, the Commodore sixty four was the classic, and it's still being exploited to this day. They're still discovering new things they can do with it and new tricks and and the the Commodore Amiga. But I mean, also the the ST and then the PC and a lot of those other machines at the the you know early nineties uh, end of the eighties. So it, it sort of spawned this um, this whole, you know, how far can we push the machine? And that went across into music as well. Um, so, you know, that's where the Commodore 64 peeps. You've got this filter and then you'd start hearing dance music on the radio and you'd be like, oh, I want to try to make music that's got that dance vibe and how can I do it with one filter and, you know, jumping between different oscillators really quick. And yeah. so there was this – it's half kind of a programming mind, half creative – it's so that very in-between, uh, and you find a lot of fascinating people um, in that scene.
0: <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Man, yeah, that's so crazy. So from, what, from my understanding, it's like um, the demo scene is, is essentially people who uh, are trying to create the most intense audio-visual experience they possibly can in the smallest file size possible, right?
1: Not necessarily the smallest file size. Um, the, you've got file limitations depending on what you're using. Um, if you're in the modern uh, era computing, um, you know, like a Windows 10 machine or something like that, then you can impose limitations to make it more fun. Because um, the other side of this is there's a lot of groups when they come together at a demo party which is where everybody comes and meets, um, people will bring their music and bring their bits of animation that's through code and they'll compete for, like, who can come up with the craziest stuff. And it's it's very friendly, but it's also, like, um, it's quite prestigious uh, in there, in, you know, amongst the people to, um, to, you know, do well. So you'll say things like, we've only got 64 kilobytes of, you know, space and we've got to do... In that 64 kilobytes, which is not much more than an email with a very small JPEG attached, right. you know, we've got to have our music engine, our, you know, effects processor, our synth generators, <clears throat> our um, everything to do with the music, including like the software to run it, the tune in memory. And then you've also got to have graphics and, you know, uh, animation and objects and a graphics engine as well. So it's got to be a complete, you know, package in that 64K. And you'd go, well, that's got to be impossible, and the answer is no, it's not impossible at all. It's just there's a lot of modern code is just massively bloated and, you know, I see any any kind of <laughs> DAW or program that's bigger than a few meg and I'm like, oh, what? what's it doing <laughs> that could possibly make it this big if it doesn't have a sample library in it, you know, right. um, uh, which is, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. And it's, it's interesting because, like, uh, for instance, Reaper, um, like, uh, by Cockos Software is, is being sort of pushed through from people who were sort of involved in that scene a little bit. And that's like the one DAW that's like, you know, five or six meg for yep. the whole installer. And that's possibly why they have that ethos as well, you know.
0: Right. And it's also <laughs> probably maybe even one of the most feature-worthy uh, DAWs that exists
1: right now. It's, it's wild, yeah. yeah it's insane. a really um, fascinating piece of software.
0: Right. So, so what kind of um, like when, when you're looking at something like a, you know, a cartridge or, or a game or trying to make mm-hmm. like an AV experience in, in, in a small package or whatever, like uh, what, what is your thought process? Like how, how do you even start with something like that?
1: Well, I mean it's like any synthesizer or any piece of gear that you come across, like you know, you after a while you sort of know, you know what it is, you look at it and you go, okay, well I can see that it's got, you know, these features on it. <laughs> I have a rough idea of what it's going to be able to do based on the, you know, the the things I can see. And you'll get a specification. So like if I was working on a Commodore 64, I would know that there's three channels of audio, so I've got three notes I can play at once. That's the first thing that I'd figure out that's like your polyphony it's a bit like looking at your racks if you've got a a modular synth or something like that you know you can look at the modules and kind of start to imagine how you chain them all together now there's obviously a little bit more limitation when it comes to how you can chain things and put things together but then you know you've got certain waveforms potentially you've got some special features like a resonance filter or something where you can connect two channels together and it'll do something really crazy. And then, you know, on top of that, okay, well, it's got like a filter, but does the filter allow you to do all the channels or just one of the channels? And that's the thing. Sometimes you'll have like if you take a Nintendo, you'll have five channels worth of audio, but the first two channels only have an octave range of a certain like, note. They don't really go down to bass notes, they sort of go down to like C2 on a piano. And then you've got a triangle channel, which is a like, really rough bass, and that goes low, but doesn't go that high. It sort of goes really high pitched and sort of gets whistly and out of control. And then you've got So a channel that can just do noise. So you can look at any given device and sort of understand roughly its capability. And your first track is always about experimenting around really to see what it can do. And usually a whole load of patterns. A lot of platforms have software already developed for them. But if you don't have software developed for them, then you can usually find some documentation from back in the day telling you about the chipsets inside them and, you know, where in memory to start whacking them to make sound <laughs> and you just start feeding registers into memory and just see what comes out audio-wise the other side and just write down a big list of, uh, you know, what you did and what sound it made and then that hopefully correlates to the documentation. And then from there you can, you can generate usually a piece of code that then plays back the music on the device. So. Wow. So, or, so, it seems like, or you um, could go and make a an device that plays MIDI, converts it into MIDI, that just taps a MIDI uh, output and allows <laughs> you to like chain it in if if you wanted to. But, you know. right. So it seems like um the the whole process is kind of like
0: this exploratory process, which uh exists also in like you know regular DWS and regular music as well. But, but it seems almost like um with with what you're doing is. Uh, it's kind of like <laughs> it's locked behind some like black box, you know, like yeah, there's some magic to it almost. or
1: A little bit and I think that was what it was always like in the old days, you know, when companies were developing for these machines um, – You know, they had an in-house team that were trying to get the games made first for the console so that they could reap the money from the release titles. Mm -hmm. And then slowly you had the third parties who would start to come in and try to figure it out. And sometimes would be thinking outside of the box, you know, to develop, you know, their ideas, you know, on top of those original release titles, um, which is still happening today, of course. Um, But, I mean, the documentation wasn't always really well published or put out there. It was a bit of a closed-door thing, you know, for the for, especially for the console industry. You know, I remember um, my old housemate was, um, used to work for a company and when the PlayStation was out, he brought home this blue PlayStation, the original PlayStation. I was like, whoa, it had this giant connector on the back of it. I was like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> like, oh, it's the dev the dev PlayStation. Like, these are $25,000. I was like, what? <laughs> you know, $25,000, but that was what they used to charge for these Dev boxes, you know, right. so that you could tap into them and actually develop for them. So it was never really encouraged for um, homebrew people to stuff around with these devices and to sort of play around. At least not the console level. Um, but of course, your computers, your home computers, like your Spectrums or your uh, Commodore sixty four or your um, your Amigas or your you know, your PCs, they were designed as a box that you could noodle with and do what you want. So. Yeah, there's, it's kind of like there's two uh, trains of thought, I guess, the home computer and then the console stuff. I find the console stuff particularly interesting because it didn't have that, like, entry level back in the day. And so you sort of, like, th- there is information out there on the internet now, of course, but um, mm. you still go on that exploration, as you say.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, man, that's so crazy. I also feel like um, on, on the other side of it, like we are talking about in email, there's... Um, <laughs> the other allure, it seems, to this is um, almost that it's just like uh, it's like a hard-to-get thing. It's like, um, it's like coveted by, you know, certain people maybe. And, uh, you know, we were chatting, for instance, about um, your music releases. And I was saying like, hey, do you have like, uh, you know, any releases that, that I can listen to online? And you said your only easy-to-access releases, that Amiga Synthwave one that you did, but um, every other release you've done, it's pretty much just on a USB stick uh, that you give away at shows or something like that, right?
1: Yeah, well, I, I, I sell at shows or a cartridge. Like I manufacture like um, Mega Drive cartridges and I'll have that album. So you plug it in and instead of being a game, it fires up and you've got a menu system. And I actually made them uh, custom for each each one custom. So it had its own graphics and its own binary on it. Um, and you'd sell them for like, you know, 50 bucks. Um, and But people would just be, holy shit, you're making like 20 of these and that's it. Um And so, yeah, and you'd have all graphics artwork and things. So you just basically flip through the tracks with your controller and you listen to the whole album off the console. Right. Um, <laughs> which I've got to make a YouTube video about because I think people will probably be quite interested to how to do that. But, um, yeah, and that was uh, – I used the Mega Drive especially for that cause it's got an FM chip in it, uh, which does these incredible sounds. Like it's just – like it's got so much capability and – But it also has some really cool undocumented features that do some really weird stuff that I think Yamaha might have rushed it out a bit. Um, And it means that some of the features will wrap and do these like crazy kind of clicky things that can kind of go out of control, but you can push them. It's like when you get an LFO and you can push it real high and sort of make FM. Um, It's kind of like that, but it's like with the envelope Uh, wrapper um but it's sort of different depending which device you get and which revision so like you know i was able to put some of that stuff in and you know make some real wild tracks and different people have said that sounds different on different consoles which i find is great you know you're hitting that point where you're you're exploiting (laughs) yeah it's like
0: well yeah like every experience that everybody has with with that same release is completely different almost so Mm. it's almost going to be that and, way anyway like no matter what because you know people listening on different speaker systems and you know in different states of mind different times of the day all that kind of stuff yeah um and you know people obviously everyone has their own uh in, internal biases with music and how they experience it and whatnot but uh but yeah on top of that like also having the music itself be like different also is like just a whole other uh, uh variable to throw in there
1: and I guess it's a bit like putting a record on or saying, you know, it's a different experience to putting a Spotify list on or something like that. Um, and I think it's the same thing again. It's different to pull out a console and then, you know, hook it up into a set of speakers and then, you know, put the cartridge in and and, and play it for a group of people. You probably, even if you're doing that, it's a bit more of an event. Yeah. You know, uh, for you to, you're going to sit down and listen to that. It's going to take a bit of effort to play it, um, which, I mean, and I thought about it. I mean, do I do a, a capture of it as well, a hardware cap? Um, and, uh, I did do a hardware cap and gave it to someone cause, uh, this poor Japanese guy bought it at a show and they were so excited, but they didn't actually have uh, a mega drive to play it on. And they yeah. were like, oh, you know, does it come with download, you know, the download code? And I'm like, no, 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 it's just the cartridge. And they were like, oh, like, how am I going to play this? So <laughs> I eventually, um, yeah, got their email and, and sent them a copy. I think they're the only one who's got a copy. So yeah. <laughs>
0: And and is this something that you have like a pretty strict boundary with of like you're not gonna uh, capture any of um, any of your releases on hardware and you just want them No, to be no.
1: Look, I totally can do that. Um, the reason I haven't is the first release I did, which was that synthwave release, is I wanted to be true to the sort of nineteen eighties way of mixing and, and and creating stuff. So like I broke everything down onto um, channels of one of the old MCI J H twenty four. Real to real machines, and I had everything running through a SSL console. All my compressors were, you know, the the original uh, stuff you know, from the nineteen eighties, and I had like the the um, digital. Um, I had a Space Echo, but like you know, all of that sort of rack original effects, and we did everything manually, and we had reverb plates and and I guess I did that because I wanted to really have that experience of that nineteen eighties studio uh, vibe. And because I set the bar so high on that release for myself, I kind of felt like I have to sort of keep doing that analog way of working for the rest of the tunes where it's like, well, maybe people are perfectly happy if I just like plug the (laughs) console or the Amiga, um, which is sort of more of a capable box in terms of what it can do. Maybe if I just plug that straight into an audio recorder and just hit record, like they're just as happy. Um, you know, I don't know how much that engineering was appreciated, but for me, I felt important to, to put that into it, to turn it from something that was just sitting on this, you know, fairly raw and ready console to color the sound in and give it like, you know, and I could do it in, of course, in a digital DAW. There's no reason I couldn't, you know, I mix film for surround sound for a living, but it's like, that's then it crosses this boundary into, uh, like I'm just firing up my, My um, digital world like and using digital effects and I just, I don't know, it just feels different (laughs) than having it on tape and then having to drop stuff in and and line things up and sync things up manually with manual sync and voltage sync and it's kind of exciting and it's that, I don't know, I really kind of love that journey of how janky it all was in the the 1980s to make stuff work and sync. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And just even effects and patching things in (laughs) and you've only got your one reverb and your one delay that you've got, you know, on a bus and Totally. I also think that if something is harder to do,
0: once you achieve it, you're like, oh my God, I did it. And like, then it's so much more satisfying. And also it gives you this like sense of ownership over the piece of music, you know, whereas like if something is too easy to do, like for instance, if you just pull a sample out of a pack and throw it on the grid in a digital audio workstation and then throw another sample on, throw another sample on and you're like, bam, that's a beat, right? It's like a drum loop and a couple of bass loops, bam, it's done. It doesn't feel like you did enough and it doesn't feel like you have enough ownership over it because it was too easy. Uh, and, I, and I think that um, even if like those few loops, like almost objectively in every way, sound more like hi-fi and, and like quote unquote better than anything you could do on like a Commodore 64 or something, it still will never be as satisfying or as fun because it like was just too easy. And I think like um, this may be like an extension of capitalist society where we just like put effort – sorry, we put value on effort. So it's like if something took a lot of effort,
1: we go, that's valuable. (laughs) Yeah, I've never stopped to think of it like that. Um, But, yeah, I think you're you're probably right Uh, because, you know, so many of my tracks are finished the night before a show. Right. um, And they're rushed out the door and then – I mean that – I always find that like, you know, 2 a.m. time, like – I just launch into this crazy frame of mind where I start. That's where all of the wild, like, bridges come in and all of the bits that, you know, I, I <laughs> that get real complicated. And then suddenly you've got a, a track that started off as like a techno acid track and now it's got like a prog rock kind of crazy lead line doing something. With it. That all happens the night before a show at 2 a.m. So and then you crawl out of bed at, you know, 2 p.m. the next day or 3 p.m. The, and you, like, you scrounge up your equipment and take it and play it at the show. But, like, that's that's kind of how tracks get finished for me. So... It's a very fuzzy. It's like, oh, geez, do I still need to work on this like a little bit and refine it and things? And I never take it to that refined level. It always feels like it's something that I've I've thrown out for a live situation, not necessarily for that, as you say, that which I've put effort into curated into something that you would listen to in your lounge room
2: mm.
1: or yeah, in your car, um, you know.
0: I think those kind of um, like deadlines are, are just another creative limitation that are, that are good to have as well. I try and put like these. Uh, I noticed during quarantine, right? Like um, we, we had a. I live in America, so we had a. We were just locked down here for like the last two years, basically. Um, and I just so I didn't have any shows, and usually shows for me are also like a source of like false like deadline, where mm. um you know, oh, it'll, yeah. it'll get to a point where I'm like, shit, I have a show this weekend. Uh, there's a beat here that I like really want to put in the set. So I have to like quickly at least get it playable. So I have to like, you know, at least make it so the buildup is like good and then the drop is good. And then like there's this mix out point, right? Um, and so long as I can get like those things done, I can like play it in the set. So mm. I'll, I'll at least get that much done. But if I if I don't have, I, I found during uh, lockdown, if I didn't have that um that limitation of like shit i have to have it done by the weekend
1: uh-huh.
0: uh just whips would just sit around like not not playable or not finished at all for like months and um
1: yep yeah that's...
0: 100% so yeah definitely I had the having, same ha- thing <laughs> yeah <laughs> having shows is is definitely a um, yeah, good source of kicking you in the ass. I think to do stuff. Speaking of shows, I'm um, like, what? do what, what do your live performances look like? Because I mean, I assume you don't just like DJ your stuff out on like USB sticks or something. Or like, yeah.
1: No, no, I take the hardware. Um, it's a sort of in between live and DJing. Um, if I've got the Commodore Amiga, it's got four channels of um, of playback. So you've got channel one is the kick. Got channel two, which is the percussion like channel 3, which is like the sort of bass stuff. Channel 4 is the chords and other bits. All all comes together. But it comes out of the Amiga as a stereo output. So two come out of one channel, two come out of the other. So you can write it so that different things will come out of different channels. And I just have a, a DJM 800 in the middle, and I use that basically to cut parts in and out or to chuck like slight reverbs and sort of like – it's almost like a mastering mixing, but you can sort of cut things around. And I've also got mutes on the machine where I can sort of mute – and um, it'll hit loops and it'll sit in a loop until I nudge it into the next spot or nudge it on like, you know, a, a bit more forwards in the song. Um, and you can jump around the song as well. So it's kind of a little bit like a very simplistic resequence on the, the fly a little bit and at least cut things around and cut things in and out. And yeah, uh, so that's what I do with the Amigo. Sometimes I've got a, like a little micro brute as well because um, they fit in backpacks. They're super handy. Uh, and just a little delay pedal because I think they sound fantastic with a bit of stereo delay. Um, and I'll just like have, um, you know, arps and stuff in there and I'll just be playing and and I just kind of know roughly what I'd layer over the top. Um, and I just have it fairly softly underneath. Sometimes with the synth wavy stuff, I'll just chuck solos in and, um, you know, be playing some live solo stuff as well. And sometimes with the electronic-y stuff, it's more just like a extra note in the mix, you know here and they're not usually at the forefront of uh, a track but it just sort of sits in at the same time as juggling around you know uh, the order of a track and stuff so
0: yeah right so so you would say um the equivalence of that maybe in the modular scene or something like that because this might be the closest thing that i understand mm. um to what you're doing is like for instance i saw richard divine play a set um if you know yep. him and yes he uh had just like a little modular rack. It was like a little skiff thing. And he just had like a bunch of patches that were built already, like, you know, and uh one patch was all with white cables, one was all with purple cables, one was all with blue cables. <laughs> and 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 they were all just like um like all the white cables were held together, like loomed together with like felt ties. All the blue ones were loomed together with felt ties and so on. And then he would sort of just like have like these multiple patches that he would move between, right? And he set um so so would you say it's kind of similar for you in that sense, but instead of like having these multiple patches, you have just like these multiple pieces of hardware that you're sort of like melding between. It's sort
1: of. The, I guess the difference would be that I don't generally um, deviate too much from that. Like I can't do lots of like oscillator, like retuning and, and tweaking and things like that. Like I wish on, for instance, the, the Mega Driver had more capability to change like my FM operators and things like that on the fly. And you can do that if you get a MIDI kit and you play it out via MIDI into the system. But then you've got like a a modern computer on stage, uh, which for me ruins the fun of it. Uh, Like I like to have it running off the actual console. Um, So I guess with that, it is a little bit more of, um, you know, a play, break it out into two channels and then, uh, you know, tweak around with it a bit in a live setting. Um, but it is a little bit, yeah, in the fact that like what well, you were saying, uh, Richard, had the three sets, it is like that in the fact that I've got, yeah, bits of hardware on stage. Like I'll usually at mm. minimum have like a Game Boy and a Mega and a Mega Drive on stage. Right. Um, and, and that's just it, no like, computers. And
0: they will be just like beats that you've sort of pre-made in these things at home. Yeah. And then you'll just sort of like tweak those beats. Like change yeah, and then there's sometimes the
1: sequencing thing. and things like that. Like on the Game yeah. Boy, there's a program called LSDJ, which is a um, little sound DJ. And it's designed for um, basically you've got your four parts. You've got your two like channels that are sort of like limited range square waves and you've got like a, a full range weird four-bit – or is it three-bit? No, it's a three-bit like uh, oscillator that's like a wavetable playback but super lo-fi. You can do a lot of crazy stuff with that. Then you've got noise. But because it's only th- four channels, you can basically use the arrow keys to jump around and mute and unmute parts, and then you can set up loops and then jump into different parts of the track and and um, get you know different sequences. So that's a bit more like a four track, four channel version of Ableton. I like if you like, mm. but instead of using the um, controller, you're using up and down, left right, and select and start and unmuting and muting sections and soloing bits for a second and then letting them go again so like i guess different devices have different levels of software uh, available for playback and and performance right and there's a scene around each of the like platforms uh that that provides you know is not a huge like there's not <laughs> tens of thousands of people but there's at least you know hundreds right you know, for each but then there's some fascinating things that have spun out of that as well but yeah so, so, what you could
0: essentially, um, if I'm understanding correctly, you could probably do all of this stuff just out out, out of Ableton using like plugins that that generate like 8 uh, bit sounds, like plug chip sounds and all that kind of crap. Yeah. And like probably just use an ish. APC or something. Yeah. Right. But like ish. Yeah. Um, and, and it would probably be more stable. It'd probably be easier. It'd probably be like all of these things. Um, so is the allure to doing it out of the console just the fact that it's like harder and just like kind of uh, you have to like there's, there's some sort of like respect that goes from artist to artist to be like, holy shit, like you did that on that sort of thing or like, or is it just the fact mm. that you just find it fun and exploratory or like, I'm just trying to understand?
1: Yeah, it's a bit of both. But I mean, also, if you want something to sound like it's from that device, You kind of got to do it on the device because it does things that uh, limit you uh, with what you can do. And you run into brick walls all the time where you're like, oh, fuck, I'm out of a note. I want to make this full chord and I can't add this. And so you end up doing your arps and doing all these things out of necessity to, to build a chord section within a track or sometimes there's pops and clicks and there's, Weird things that happen, um, and and you, they're really annoying when you first discover them, and they continue often to be annoying. But it's like that's part of the limitation of dealing with a computer, mm. and the you know the whole thing of um, just being our use of VST plugin is just like oh you won't have any of these limits, but then you stop writing right. music that really sounds like it's made for that yeah. the, the yep. device, and even when you bring it across to the device and you put it on, it often I know this sounds weird, but it sounds kind of fuzzy and not as well produced and not as as good out of the device. And then you have to sort of like EQ it and compress it a bit. Sometimes they sort of get it. So, and you just get a different sound about it, like, you know, and, and like different like, you know, I've got a um, a Nomad here. If I turn that on, I don't know if you can hear the hissing noise on that.
0: I can't know. It's
1: probably filtering it out <laughs> over <laughs> Zoom, but um, I'll I'll give you the separate so that people on the the stream can hear it. But like that's just the noise of the you know when I turn it on. So there's like things like hums and buzzes and things that you know just gives it character. And just the yeah, and just like the Commodore sixty four SID chip, like nothing can really sound like they're all they all sound slightly different, and they just they're just a bit wild and crazy when you actually have them in the flesh. Mm. Um, and there's a different sense of writing like because and and this I guess brings us to the biggest thing about writing uh, for a lot of these chip platforms um, is a lot of them are in the tracker format mm. so rather than you know putting dots on a page piano roll style you're yeah, it's all like writing music like an excel to, spreadsheet yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah which <laughs> like I I'm really used to it and I find it really good because it's you have all of your channels and all of your commands and everything in front of you at all times yep. it's not like like I find it c- terribly confusing to work in a DAW because there's plugins that hide themselves, mm-hmm. um, you know. And I I have three 28 inch screens because I do my film mixing stuff. But that's like I have every single thing on the screen at the same time. Like I hate having a plugin that is hidden. Yeah. Like that's that's apart from maybe instances where there's something like that happens for a moment on a on a piece of dialogue or something. Like I just like to have everything in front of me so I can. And I guess it's that because I grew up with four tracks and. Mm. And, you know, that real like tape sort of manual vibe. Um, yeah, you're like, no abstraction. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I find as soon as I'm out tabbing or I'm looking around for stuff, I just, uh, you know, especially for music, I get very confused and very tired writing music and I find it snaps mm. me out of the composing. And the fact that you could always see what how every single note relates to every single other note uh, at a glance because they're just like listed in front of you, all of the notes and all of the commands at all times, you can just tweak your track and you can copy and paste slabs of a track at once. You're not like, Mm. uh, but you're doing it almost at piano roll level. It'd be like having every single piano roll open at the same time in front of you and all of the parameters and everything for every track where you can easily copy and paste and do like, um, so it, it changes the way you work and it changes the way you write. Um, and I think certainly for electronic dance stuff, especially if you're chopping things up and you're jumping between things a lot, like there's, there's a big, um, a big reason that event list style writing works really well. Um, you know, especially when you're dealing with polyphony and you want specific things to cut in and out at certain times and things like that, you can see, you know, where, with your sampling, you know, exactly what you're doing and what channels. Whether with a piano roll, you might have two notes and you know you've got two polyphony and you can juggle it. But what if it, the last note you put on, you wanted that one to be the one you cut off, you mm-hmm. know, in your polyphony chain. So you can do all of this, uh, composing in a way that really controls exactly how the track sounds and how things cut off and come on and and um, you know even things like doing build ups and bits, you've got that per note automation that I know things like Bitwig have it now. Um, I think Ableton has it too now, but that you can, you know, that the automation comes with the note when you copy and paste it. Um, so there's a lot of things you can do. Um, and you can even you're writing modern music in that way. Um, you know there's things like um, uh, what's the program, Re... Renoise. Uh, renoise, that's right. Yep. Almost called it Rebirth. <laughs> <laughs> uh, renoise that could do that, um, you know, that, yeah. And, and a lot of the drum and bass and uh, you know, breaks and beats, people swear by it, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's just a different, different way of writing music. I do both, but um, I find them very, very different to work with.
0: Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think um, one thing I noticed was when I was, I, I sold all my modular stuff basically at this point, but like I, I got into it for a while because um, I wanted to make $10,000 fart noises. And I was like uh, starting to write music on that. And then I, I started to like, uh, yeah, I was like, oh, wow, this sounds really crazy and different and awesome. And then I would I would try recording it into Ableton. And my idea was like, if I can record it into Ableton and if that WAV file that is in Ableton now... It, is recorded in Ableton that means it could have been created in Ableton like if it can exist in the digital realm it could have been created in the digital realm it was created in the digital realm but it was created by an audio input that was then converted into digital right um so that was my like style of thinking um but i it, there's something about it like as soon as you record it in it's not the same it's like you take that modular shit that you're listening to going straight um, into your speakers or whatever, and as soon as you like record it in, it it just doesn't sound the same. And and also, as soon as you start like chopping it up and resequencing it digitally and EQing it and all that kind of shit, it instantly sounds fucking like electronic stuff and no no longer analog at all. It's like, there there is something about that non-linearity With all of the noise sources and all of the like, you know, clocking and stuff like that, that that even if it's just off by the tiniest amount, it's like your your brain can kind of tell.
1: Yeah, that whole recording it. um, I mean, that has been obviously the whole thing of recording since the early days. You know, it's different. I don't know, and it's like when you record sometimes. I don't know if you found this with your modular stuff. You'd see all this low frequency shit that you can't even hear that's in tracks and stuff. And like an extra stuff, and you're like, oh, I got to filter that out and make sure that. And then it's like, hang on a sec, is the way all of this is summing live and doing its thing? Is it adding these extra weird low frequency shit that we can't even hear? But it's like pushing and pulling around the way the speakers work and the way the right. electronics totally. and the speakers are doing things. Like, like it's pretty terrifying when you you make a sound sometimes in that modular world, and then you bring it into waveform. You're like fuck. Is that what I've been sending to my speakers? No wonder right. they've been wobbling around. Like,
0: like, yeah, it's just some <laughs> like giant square thing with like. <laughs> yeah, totally.
1: Some sub-carrier wave. Yeah, and that's the. I think that's some of the magic for um for the people. I really get the whole modular thing. I just refuse to get into it because I can't afford it. Um, and it's uh the fascination for me is just seeing how some of these patches are made, and just being like, wow, like what is that actually doing? <laughs> you know? Like what does the waveform on that? What would that look like? Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And the, I mean, the same thing with modular stuff, right? It's like I've played with the like modular stuff a ton and and I'll play with it for like 10 minutes and all of a sudden I'm like, holy fuck, like I'm making sounds I've never thought to like make before, right? Like this is, just, I, what the hell is that sound? That's crazy. That sounds insane. Um, And then I'll like look at the patch and kind of like reverse engineer it a bit and be like, oh, it's just like I could do this in Serum and, and that would be the same. And then i do it in Serum and I'm like, it is basically the same. But then I'm like, why the fuck have I never thought to do that in Serum before? And it's just the way that the technology is presented to you, it kind of like it holds your hand and guides you through in a way, you know. And yeah, I think likely probably some of the um, allure that you're experiencing with with writing on these uh, older sort of um, devices as well is, is like that, right? Which is like, it's, it's, mm. it's causing you to to write, you know, music that you that you probably wouldn't think to write if you were writing it on Fruity Loops or Ableton or something.
1: Yeah. No, absolutely. And it and it, it changes the way you write in those like uh programs. So I use Reaper as my main DIW for writing as well. And um uh, you know, I find that I never have a track count larger than it'll fit on my screen. Um right. like, you know, I've probably done tracks that have all eighteen channels if I'm like really pushing it. <laughs> like, but I don't know, and I do a lot of sharing of um, like I'll have a channel for generic stuff and be sharing a lot of waveform. I do a lot of <laughs> when I compose in a modern way. I'm very strange. I like to actually just play stuff in um, and and have waveform on the screen uh, and then just zoom in and see the bits of waveform and how they like line up. Drums I'll grid, but then everything else I'll just turn the grid off and turn the quantize off and just place bits of waveform. I'll play it in like as a live take and then I'll just chop it up and reposition it and then just copy and paste it. So there'll be like... 100,000 bits of waveform on my screen as my track. But then you can zoom right into it and you can see how the phase is working and how it's flipping and do little automations on the clips and mm. line them up and get it exactly so that, you know, rather than having sidechain compression and things like that, you just sort of manually tweaking and tickling things and making sure that, the, the you know, where the phase is. Sometimes when it's slightly out of phase, it's like, you know, it sort of helps with the mastering the levels sometimes because it doesn't stack as much. Yep. Obviously, you don't want it to suck away. So you can get to that macro level of of seeing you know how the waveform works um and it's it's like i really you know that is a very different way of working to how i've seen other people work where they like they'll just strictly be piano roll and plugins and they'll never render anything out like they just they'll just like render it at the end of the day and just use their ears which is cool like i really think that's there's a lot to just using your ears but mm. for me i really like to see behind the magic i like to know mm. what's happening with my my uh, my voltages and I always think about my speakers and how they're moving and how mm. they and, and I don't know maybe that's um coming from a background of sound and film as well maybe that's like um, I am pretty petty about that stuff <laughs> but it's really strange I find it really hard to let go and and just be in that sort of piano role and having a, a VST sort of running vibe it's just it's very different mm. um, no I agree
0: with you I think and, yeah phase is incredibly important I think you can have the best of both worlds these days though with stuff like um, Oz, oscilloscope or whatever it's called and like if you use like synths that have you know solid re-triggering and stuff like that with the, all of you know for instance serums oscillators are able to re-trigger pretty solidly at this point and um if you like put yeah, os, right. oscilloscope on like every channel then you're able to like sort of view all the oscilloscopes in like one plug-in window and then you're able to like see all the phases like in and then that way you can keep it all in midi and
1: yeah, for instance, I, like, people my, keep saying serum to me. Uh, like I, I've never used it or looked at it. I, it's it, fucking it, insane. Uh, same with
0: Phase Plant. Like if you've never used Phase Plant, it's essentially like if you can imagine any like VST synthesizer that you've ever used before, but it just has no limits at all. Like you can add as many oscillators as you want, as many modulators as you want, as many effects as you want. Like and, and it has pretty much every effect available that you could you could think of. You stack them as many times as you want. Like literally, you're only limitation is your computer like your processing power
1: see to me i don't know if that's terrifying or amazing because like it's both i mean would, like you can get would you spend your whole life making sounds like i don't know it's possible yeah i mean you can get sucked into that world
0: for sure at that point i think yeah you have to like use some sort of like self-discipline or like whatever to be like all right this is a sound design session this is a writing session like
1: don't don't confuse the two do you, do you do that when you write your music? Because I've noticed you've got a lot of intricate sounds in your sets where you drop into some incredible, like, and I just, I, I can feel some of those sounds have been, you know, tweaked and twiddled with, and they're sort of like, and like, oh, that's got to be done in a, in a single note thing. Like, yeah. how do you break that process up? So sometimes it's accidental. Like, you know, every now and then I'll be like, what the fuck,
0: just, and just render that. <laughs> um, And then other times it's like I'll sit there for hours and hours just making patches, you know, and I'll just make like tons and tons of iterations of a single patch and then I'll go back to the first one and it's like a completely different thing. So, um, you know, I'll like just have, I just have loads and loads of patches and loads of racks, you know, because in Ableton you can like make um, audio effect racks or instrument racks or whatever. So I'll make an instrument rack make audio effect racks, like, all sorts of shit, and then I'll, like, macro tons of shit to, like, a rack and then make a bunch of iterations of the rack and stuff like that. Um, and so that's as I'm your going,
1: adventure and your ex- exploration sort of stage, I guess, of sound, would you say?
0: Yeah, kind of. And then when I'm writing, I do a little bit of sound design, but not, not as much as I would, like, in a specific sound design session. And then, um, yeah, when when I'm, I guess, writing, I try to just, like, put it all together as a beat and just, like, move forward with the composing slash beat writing process as much as possible without getting too caught up in the sound design stuff because I feel like, yeah, it can (laughs) very easily turn into a, like, yeah, I'm vibing with this shit to, fuck, there's too much, 200 hertz. (laughs) So, um, yeah, it's a balance for sure.
1: Yeah, that that thing of breaking up your instrument design and the actual composing... um, yeah it's and and sometimes you fluidly switch between those two I find and other times like you've almost just got to keep it to a, a sound design sesh um it's a very interesting, like uh, you know, when you try to go back to the sound design stuff. Sometimes when you're midway through composing, and um, you can still tweak things and, and twiddle with them a little bit. Uh, depending if you've rendered them, it's a little bit weird to then go back and like go back into the sampling sort of style thing and and the design and just tweak something. It's sort of like whoa, like <laughs> where is everything? I don't know if you find that a little bit like mm. it's two kind of different brains.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think these days. Um, yeah, back in the day when you were like in a band or whatever, it's like you you in the band would be what, the drummer or whatever, and then you would go into the studio, you would do your drum thing, the guitarist would do their guitar thing, the bassist would do their bass thing. Then you would have an engineer who's like just there to record everything and then you would have another engineer who's just there to like mix everything and another engineer that you would send it to to master everything. It's like at this point it's like you're the drummer, you're the person who's... Crafting the the drum out of the wood yourself. You're the guitarist. You're the you built the. You're the luthier. You're the mix engine Like you're everything. And uh, at this point, like if, if you're even like building your own Max patches or software and, and whatnot to do the thing as well, it's like you literally are the luthier and shit at the same time. Um, so yeah, it's like uh, definitely, uh, you know, it's gonna be. The equivalent would be like, you know, maybe going into a studio to record a metal album. and would be like, hold on one sec. I'm just going to like go out to the woodworking shop here and like build my guitar, you know. <laughs> um,
2: so yeah, yeah. I think it's,
0: it's important to kind of like break those processes up so you're not jumping into like, yeah, two completely different mindsets or whatever and just like stunting your writing process.
1: Mm. And sometimes you got to have like, uh, I mean, I, I even find this with uh, modern stuff and, and sound engineering. You've got to have like a day where you – or a half day where you say, right, I'm just going to explore some completely new things I've never looked at before just in case I like something comes across which is like, oh. Um, and it's it's really hard sometimes. You get stuck in your ways to actually stop yourself. I find – I don't know if you find this as well – just to stop and then have a look at something new and just have a twiddle with it and just like see, you know, see what comes of it because in the back of your mind, you're like, ah oh, like I don't think I'd ever use that or like I'm not sure if I want to use that. Um like you know for, for me spectrosonic stuff comes to mind like you know I was like ah oh, Omnisphere is just this big library thing but then you know that's that's my probably my main go to I think I'm down to like I've only got 4 VSTs on the whole computer and, like, Omnisphere is one of them. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, uh, apart from VSCFX, of course, they're, they're full of those, but instrument generator-wise, like you, sometimes you'll just find something and be like, oh, like I, I have just been not looking at this this whole time. Do you find that occasionally you come across a new one or do you find that you prefer to just master the ones that, like, serum it sounds like, that you're like a bit of a like massive rabbit hole? God at serum, like, do you find that that's you get more satisfaction and like you know out of that attacking that one and being this person who really gets into that rather than also taking the time to sort of explore you know other other things?
0: Yeah, I mean, I try to do both, right? Like, I try to be extremely good at a few tools for sure because sometimes you just want to be like, I need to do exactly this thing right now, and I don't want to fuck around. Um, but then obviously you, you want to make sure that you're not like missing out on any crazy shit too. So every now and then I'll buy some like, you know, weird obscure plugin, like for $14 off plugin boutique that's on sale, like loom two or some shit that like nobody's using and you know, mess around with it. And like loom two is a great example. It's like, I bought it for, for about, yeah, 15 bucks on sale one day and I was like, holy shit, this is like a better version of razor. This is incredible. And like, (laughs) um, so, yeah, like, yeah, definitely, I think that's worth doing. Cause if you, if you stop that exploratory process, not only does, like, you hear people all the time. Or at least I, I hear people all the time saying shit like, man, like producing music, it used to be so fun. You know, back in the day, I used to just get lost in the source for like hours and just like making crazy shit. And now these days, it just feels like such a slog. And like, I can't even like sit down to write music anymore. It's like such a pain in the ass. You know, I'm like so uninspired, all this kind of shit. And I feel like part of that is for that reason, because they just like forget to, to, to explore, you know? And I feel like that exploratory sort of childlike uh, discovery process is, is uh, most of the fun.
1: Absolutely, no. Uh, that's that's exactly why, yeah. I do the chip music thing, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> as my totally. limitation, creative limitation, and yeah, no. It's um, it's it's an interesting, uh, interesting thing that limitation as an artist, uh, to to you know bring out, uh, you bring out you. But even when you're like taking a show on tour or something like that, and you've got to decide, well, what? How am I going to break this into a live show and turn it into something? that's going to go on the road and it is playable also under stress because, you know, sometimes there's a bit of stress, right, set up before a show. It's not the same as being zen in a studio. You need to be able to do things under pressure, especially if your fallback's got issues or you're, um, you know, you've got some, all the stage is just like echoey and especially those big <laughs> festival stages are pretty weird. Um, when you first get on them, Um, which I've only done a few, but it's like, well, where's the sound gone? It's like (laughs) like, there's this empty void of like weird reflection-y stuff in front of you and this Mm. body of like kind of real muffly sound and then you can hear the audience really in your face and then you've got these sort of stage monitors that are there but it's kind of like bouncing into sort of nothing behind you and then maybe off an LED screen behind you bouncing straight back at your head, which is 10 metres behind you and it's like 50 milliseconds of bounce. You're like, whoa. It's like so you've got to sort of have something that I guess like where you could, you know, you can still do things like under that pressure and that weirdness and have time to adapt without putting the pressure of a whole performance on yourself. So that, I don't know, how do you, how do you approach that? Like, I'm curious. Um, either turn I mean, do, the you, boost do you ever do you, do you bust
0: out the, the synths and things live as well? No, I'm a DJ. I used to. I mean, I had a full live show where I would like send MIDI. Like I I had like a guy who was doing like fully synced visuals with me. So he'd have like a really powerful computer at the front of house. I'd have a really powerful computer on stage with me. And then I had a drummer who also had a really powerful computer. And we were sending Cat6 cables to each other. And like we were all fully synced on like a local network. And I would send MIDI to the drummer. Um, Oh, sorry. He would send MIDI to me from his drums. And some of the MIDI stuff that he'd be doing would be triggering program changes in in my session, and then stuff that I would be changing in my session would be changing some of the trigger sounds on his kit. And then both of our MIDI's were being sent to the front of house uh, guy who was like inputting it into like uh, either like Touch Designer or Notch or something like that, and would be triggering like synced visuals on the screen from the drummer and my controllers. And like we we went to town on this live show. It was crazy. Um, and no one gave a shit. But like, <laughs> uh, ah. and then after that, man, I was like, dude, this is so much work. I spent like a year producing this fucking show, and I came out like massively in the red from it. Um, and I was like, I just took it like a long. I was just, and I was just burnt out. I was like, I never want to fucking do a show again and then i just like Mm. took a long sort of look at my career and was like what do i even want you know out of life and music and like why i don't ever want to feel like this again basically and i was like you know what really what i like doing is being in the studio making beats like that's the fun part um so i was like how can i do that and and make a living out of it so i was like you know what no one gives a fucking shit like what what's going on like the whole show thing that was for me right like it's like people in the audience, They maybe a few people cared, but like for the most part, people just want to go to a show and have a good time, right? They don't care. Party, how the, yeah. How, yeah, they don't care how the sound's getting out of the speakers. So I was like, you know what? I just care about making beats. People just care about having a good time. I'm just going to make beats and play them off CDJs and just learn how to be a decent DJ. So I bought some CDJs, learned how to do like some pretty active mixing stuff You know, where I'm just like constantly doing stuff on the CDJ so I don't feel like I'm doing nothing. Um, <laughs>
1: yeah it's funny that producer is a dj <laughs> it yeah changes exactly. your mindset.
0: it does yeah and i mean like you know there was two ways to go about it i could either just convince myself that being a good dj is about a being a good librarian basically and two being very patient and waiting um or i could like you know develop like routines so to speak where i'm like you know kind of doing a lot of stuff up there so I, so I went with the latter approach and <clears throat> that's yeah what I do now so so for the most part it's like my my set preparation has gone from a year down to like <laughs> a week if that and my amount of time spent in the studio just making beats has gone from you know six weeks a year to almost every day which is exactly what I want to do in life so
1: and you can be a lot more spontaneous because when you've got a show and you're touring a show, I guess you're locked down. So the, yeah. uh, it's a little bit like having a set list. And the exactly. way if you've got program changes and things and graphics, you can mix it up a bit. But um, there is still that sequencing of the show uh, where – I guess being spontaneous and bringing stuff the day before and the night before and things like that, you wouldn't, well, you sort of can a little bit, but if there's multiple of you as well on stage, it makes it a little harder because you've got to have it all planned out and then you're set and tested and run and then it's that sort of nervousness. Whether if you can smash out the waveform and you've just got it ready to play off live, mm-hmm. um, that means you can be more spontaneous and bring that energy and, and just really enjoy the moment of like you've put all those hard yards into the production and yeah. and then just take it out for the people and celebrate that.
0: Yeah, exactly. And and the thing is, is like if I, you know, I'm super stoked about this new thing that I'm playing uh, versus, you know, in this live show, I was like kind of sick of it by the end. I was like, fuck, I would just like bang out this fucking one hour thing again. Like after 50 shows, I'm like just literally doing the same thing over and over again. Um. So instead it's like, you know, doing doing this thing where I'm like, this is the first time I've ever played this. I literally just like rendered it out in the hotel and threw it on my USB stick like 20 minutes ago. Like that that yeah. is way more exciting to me. And I feel like if I'm really excited about the thing that I'm doing, then everybody else all of a sudden becomes like way more excited. Because they're like, whoa, this guy's excited? Well, then fuck it. Like I must be sick,
1: right? Like. <laughs> And you can tell when an artist is truly excited and playing something for the first time, especially right. when they get on the mic and they announce it. And you're like, "Oh, cool! It's the first totally, people to yeah. hear this." You know? Yeah, and you can all,
0: yeah. likewise. You can tell if like they're kind of just bored as well. And and I think like that rubs off on people a lot too.
1: Yeah, <laughs> there's a a famous story of um, there's a band from the '70s called Yes, um, or late '60s, and they did. Um, a lot of uh, sort of uh, synth stuff sort of integrated with, uh, like, you know, live playing music as well, that very sort of progressive rock sort of vibe
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and melodic. and they, But they did some really cool stuff. But they got to the point where the keyboard player was fairly famously renowned for once, ordered, like, um, like a, a full, like, meal on stage or had, like, takeaway and was just, like, eating at the same time <laughs> as, like, playing the show. <laughs> and, and, like, uh, he just yeah.
0: He just, like, played the set that many times.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think he'd forgotten to eat, and so we'd like got one of the stage people go off and do a takeaway for him, and, um, <laughs> and got back and like unpacked it, sort of ate it as, as they played the show. Jeez. Like uh, it's pretty, pretty legendary. <laughs> yeah, yes yeah, it's plans. kind of like you just think, wow.
0: Wait, yes, um, the band that sings "Own Lonely Heart" is something of a lonely. Or of
1: lonely heart. Yeah. yeah. Dude, that's, yeah, yeah that they did a lot of early Fairlight stuff, yeah. That in fact, the, the people shit. Trevor Horn and co went on to be some of the most legendary, uh, like producers of the 1980s and 90s, you know,
0: yeah, dude. So. Yeah, that song is crazy. So, um, actually, the only reason I've heard that song or know about it is, um, I was hanging out with Patrick Leonard, who's the guy who wrote, um, Like a Prayer by Madonna. And oh, amazing, he wrote like a bunch of shit. Yeah, he invited me to his house in LA to like do some work. And um, yeah, I was hanging out with him there. He's like super into modular stuff as well, and yeah, he showed it to me in his studio. And I was like, "What the hell? This is crazy!" I like never heard of this.
1: Yeah, they've um, you know, some of those '70s uh, prog people. I get a lot of inspiration from the those early sounds. They do some really wild, crazy stuff, especially with the synth sounds and some of the acid jazz, like um, Chick Corea and Co. You know, they were there on those early synths, making these giant, swelling, incredible sounds, but using them very, very, very musically. But every now and again, you can just hear they went down a rabbit hole and did a sound design little sesh on the mm-hmm. like on the setup, the the moog big system thing, and you're like, whoa, that got that's heavy, like. <laughs> and you know they did it live; they recorded it to tape, and then it was like that was it, you know, it's gone. That was on the record, mm. yeah, um, yeah, and like yeah, some of those old sounds are like are incredible, and there's some really amazing stuff like from that era of that you occasionally find where people noodled around with this electronic music before. You know, you get these really weird records like um, "Everything You Wanted to Hear on the Moog Synthesizer, But Were Too Scared to Ask For" is one of the like ridiculous albums I've got, and it's got these, and it was almost cartoony like, you know, uh, and these new synthesizer, you know, sounds, and um, yeah, I don't know, I find it fascinating that that um, exploration of uh, of synthesis, like how people over the years, you know, now of course we hear it all the time, we're used to hearing you know, electronic oscillators. But there was a time where, um, and I don't know how we got onto this, but there was, yeah, there was a time where, like, uh, that was really, um, you know, something that was, uh, people got a bit confused about. And I don't know if that's why, like, uh, there's still this thing in us. I think it's back to that live performance thing of wanting to, of sometimes as a musician, you're like, especially if you're a guitarist or something, and you've got into that growing up, you're like, I've got to put on a show and, and play the music and you, you're so deep about that, like bringing the performance that you forget, especially with electronic music, that a lot of it is about just a good system in a room and a really good vibe and that's, you know, where do you, where does it all cross over?
0: Yeah, and I think that line is just different for everybody and I think for the most part um, that line is defined by the artist themselves and how comfortable they are with doing pre- essentially pressing a button between one and twenty thousand times in a set or something right and it's like whether that button be a fret on a guitar board or a key on a keyboard or a play button on a CDj it's like do you want to press the button in time one time or a billion times in the set and does it how in time does it have to be and how synced can it be and all that shit and like at what point do you feel like you're legit doing so <laughs> like all that kind of stuff and and at what point does like Uh, you pressing the button less times take away from like the performance and at what point does pressing the button more times take away from the music and like there's so many questions to like uh, answer for yourself and yeah I think for me personally I just found um, that I skewed way more heavily on the I don't give a shit about a lot of the live quote-unquote aspect um, of electronic music just because like like you put in all of this time like editing shit and making it sound all crazy and crisp and clean and perfect and then it's like anything you do to it as a human being after that is going to be less good than what a computer can do, right?
1: That's right. And you've got a mastered, finished track that you're really happy with and you've refined right. and then it's like, oh, shit, i got to deal with having all of that. Right? And yeah. sometimes like you're mastering plugs and things. If you've got to redo that whole stage at the end of your thing, you get latency issues and things so you might take it off or leave it to an engineer and it's almost like, well, you know, are we decreasing the quality of what we, we made at this point? I don't know. Well, you, you yeah. yourself
0: said like you like to render everything down into audio to the point where you can see the phases of everything, right? And like putting all of those phases in time, it's like there's no way you can do that live. Like, no. <laughs> it's like what's the <laughs> point in doing all of that shit and then like taking it live and then just destroying all those phases, you know, so um, yeah, yeah, that's the, that's kind of where I got to with that that uh, that mindset, I guess.
2: Though hmm. no, when I when I do see
0: people doing like live electronic music stuff, like Yoda or um, it's another good example, like Beardy Man or something like that, I do I'm like very I, it makes me laugh, you know. Like it's you know when you see music that's that sick, you, it makes you laugh. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. the response I have to it. Usually, I'm just like, what? <laughs> um, so, yeah. so I'm envious of it a little bit, but at the same time, I think it's not for me.
1: What do you think of the the whole um, concept of the loop? style stuff where you, you go on stage kind of like, you know, or or even like with the whole live asset thing where it's like you go on stage with nothing, a blank canvas, and then you just perform a set. That mm-hmm. that thought for me, I don't know if it's, it's a bit terrifying. Like, I mean, what happens if you don't get inspiration or like, you know, yeah. do you ever have you ever seen sort of many of those sets where you just like you watch something form and you're just like, whoa
0: <laughs> Yeah, I mean I I assume that like probably they just do it enough and like the energy from the crowd and whatnot is enough to like carry them and Maybe if, like, they aren't getting inspiration at the time, they probably have redundancy plans or contingency plans, you know, where they're like, oh, you know, just drop into this thing and then I can, like, sort of go just go through the motions of an old set or something. Like, I'm sure there's, like, once you get up to that level of professionalism, like Effects or you know, Beardy Man or Jacob Collier or something like that, I'm sure, like, there's no possibility of the set not happening if <laughs> inspiration doesn't strike.
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah, I just find it fascinating watching some of those things unfold and you're just like, wow, like how, how's this noodling all together? Especially something like the J- – have you seen uh, Jacob Collier play live? Yeah, I
0: have, yeah. Yeah, he's yeah, insane. That, he like plays the yeah. whole crowd like an NPC basically. It's insane. He's like, all yeah. right, you guys do the kicks, you guys do the snares, you're a choir and he's like,
1: boom, go, boom,
0: back, you go. <laughs> like, Yeah, it's crazy.
1: Yeah, and it's funny because like, you know, it, it, sometimes you just got to have someone who's got the – I guess the guts and the uh, intuition and just the true trust in the audience that they can do that and get away with it. I guess he's quite lucky because um, a lot of the audience members will be musicians. But uh, but yeah, I, I've I've found that fascinating. Like that whole uh, just making something from the crowd and then like just then integrating it into a tune that you're playing and then mm-hmm. like at the same time as playing, conducting a crowd and, and bringing them into it. I mean that that is that's some pretty serious crowd interaction like, yeah, level wise.
0: Yeah, he's he's on another fucking level, dude. Like, there's not many, if any, musicians I think out there that are quite at his level. Um, I think he's managed by Quincy Jones, which is like mm. the same guy who managed like Michael Jackson and stuff.
1: Yeah, like co-managed, I think, or it's definitely like um, uh, like draws a lot of um, like inspiration, and uh, I think it sends all these demos to and things like that. Um, did mm. you ever see the the harm with you or the harm for you series? where people for mm-hmm. a, a fundraiser on Patreon, he um, got people to send a 15-second uh, like clip of them singing or playing an instrument or doing something. And then he would take that and then add like a hundred other parts or like, you know, or do a harmonies over the top or like do a full band. Someone would just be singing some like little thing they made up and he'd <laughs> chuck a whole disco track on top of it Wow! No, uh, and I turn it into a track. It was incredible, but he would do each one within three hours and he would live stream it and say, right, okay, I've got three hours. We're going to, well, I'm going to take this acapella someone's just sung in their bathroom on their phone to me and I'm going to turn it into a whatever it turns into. And <laughs> we'd just get it, lay it out, and we'd just start playing over the top, turn all snapping off, like whatever timing it was, we'd just play to it um, and just have the waveform at all times on the screen so that he could see, you know, where the cues were and then just write to it, including like if it was microtonally out of. Tune would actually like detune <laughs> notes and things as he went and detune the instruments to sort of match their ad- it's, it's like, insane, wow, you're taking something and completely like you have like that. They, they have set the whole tone for what you're about to create, yeah. Based on you know, and some of them were kids, like it was like, oh, my kid is a big fan of yours, like they're gonna <laughs> sing a song now for you. And and there'd be people like singing random, like you know, uh, you know, traditional European songs in the hills of, of somewhere. It's fascinating. It's called the um. I harm you. It is actually yeah. I harm, and then the letter U. It's uh, for any musician. I'd recommend checking oh, those yeah. out.
0: I harm you. Because gonna...
1: yeah, it's okay, absolutely mind-boggling. Wow. Like it's a, and that thing of of that that is your creative inspiration. Um,
0: Holy shit. Okay. I yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I'll check this out. That's crazy. Um, hectic. Yeah. So you 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 went pretty deep down that YouTube rabbit hole thing. Uh, was it just during the pandemic that you started doing that or were you doing that for a long time before?
1: Oh, I've been doing it for a fair while. Um, I guess the main YouTube thing for me uh, sort of kicked off oh, about 2012. Um, I had the Guitari, <laughs> which was an Atari 2600, which is kind of the most atonal uh, computer from like 1976, specifically says in the manual the oscillators are not for writing music. They're just for sound effects and they're not <laughs> musical. So that was a good reason for me to try to get music out of it. So it's got two tone generators that generate, uh, I don't know if you can hear this, but sort of this sort of engine noise. I can't hear that. Ah, uh, okay, right. So it's uh, filtering it out. I can definitely hear it. You'll get it on the recording. But there's basically all of these like... Sound effects and noises that you you get out of it, and 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 square waves that are all at weird intervals, and so I decided to like um like try to make some music on the Atari 2600. But I found the output on it was really hot because I had to sort of like take an output and off the chip, and because th- these old machines only had a uh like an aerial to plug into your old aerial TV, you know. So if you want to plug it in a PA system or something like you can't because there's no audio output. So you had to sort of solder your own audio output. But um, my particular one just had a really high output. So I ended up like using a guitar like bass EQ pedal to pull the like, line level down because it was the only thing I had that could take such a high signal, you know, from a like, slap bass and stuff. You get these really high voltages. So it could also take the input from the Atari. And then I decided, oh, it sounds pretty good with a delay pedal as well. And I can use that to sort of squidge stuff around. and do. So I eventually made this thing called the Qatari, which was, <laughs> it was the Atari, but with these guitar pedals and the joystick I needed all mounted on a board together. And we decided it'd be really funny after a few beers to turn it into a guitar. So you actually just <laughs> wore it on stage. Right. Um, and it was really cause I needed to keep all of the bits together and I, and there was like pedals and there's things. And you know, when you're getting on stage, you just need to plonk down a board with all your gear on it. So it was a real easy way of having a board with all the equipment on it. But we chucked this sort of stupid fake headstock, you know, with my name on it my artist name and stuff and just turned it into the Qatari. Um, of, I chucked a video clip of explaining sort of what I'd done on YouTube and then, um, yeah, it just kind of took off and, and went a bit viral. So I guess that's where my first introduction and people sort of knew me then as, oh, that's that crazy guy that takes the chip music stuff and does stuff. Um, so from there, and no, I went down a rabbit hole of, yeah, um, I haven't done a ton of stuff. Like I really want to do a bunch more uh, YouTube vids. I've got like heaps of ideas, but um, just I guess documenting stuff that uh, people are like often curious about, but there's there's no sort of uh, s- stories like like the story of, for instance, sampling using like the Commodore Amiga when you were a kid and you had no budget kind of mm. story. Because a lot of people, um, you know, in the especially late '80s, early '90s, you know, in the studios, that was the documents of how people made music. You know, they had an S nine fifty, and then they like brought that into the studio, and then they'd break it out onto maybe different samplers, and then they had a replayer, and they had a desk and reel to reel machines and some effects and but, like, as a kid, you could never afford that as a, you know, 12-year-old. What did you have? You had, like, you know, a computer that could crunch out, like, four channels of 8-bit audio and you had these, like, $20, $30 samplers that you could buy from the computer swap meet. Or mm-hmm. you could build your own circuit based on a, like, there'd be magazine articles right in the back of them with these, like, little things of, oh, you're a musician. Try to build this electronic circuit, you know. <laughs> and so you could, and they'd give you a parts sort order of list. You'd go to Dick Smith, which is Australia's, like, Radio yeah. Shack. Right. Be like, I need these bits. And then you'd like have to make a PCB, so you would buy a little PCB making kit, and you'd like draw out the tracks, the traces, and then you'd put it in the sun and like make your own circuit board and <laughs> use the chemicals to etch it. You could buy all this stuff, you know, from the Radio Shack equivalent. Um, and you know, you'd, I was lucky; my dad was an engineer, so he was able to sort of help me out with this stuff. And you know, you'd build a sound card, then you'd be able to like sample stuff into the computer, and you know, so and I guess nobody really documented that super ghetto homemade music sort of stuff. So I've been trying to do a little bit of that and actually exploring, like, some of the early music. Like, um, this is a visual cue, but I've got one here that I'm going to look at pretty soon, which is, like, for the Commodore 64, there was this package that came out called, uh, uh, what's it called, Uh, The Music Studio. Um, And on the front (laughs) it has these mixing desks and all of this no this is a um, this VHS. is a, a, no this is a cassette um oh, a piece of software that you put in your Commodore 64 oh
2: wow. and
1: you load up but oh, it was God. pretty much one of the first VSTs because if you look at the back of it it's really hard to see but there's these like screens right. oh, I'll, yeah. I'll make the video at some point but right. these screens that had all of your oscillators and had all of the access to the chipset so you had like you know choose between square wave and sine wave and triangle wave and you could set uh, filters and you could do things. But it was like really the very first software implementation of where you were doing it on a screen. Um, and... Interestingly, it's almost impossible to use because you have to use a joystick instead of a mouse to get to everything. Mm. So, And it's like, it's not even, it's a digital joystick. It doesn't have degrees of movement. So it's just like, like you have to like left, right. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. And then you get to the thing you want to change on the screen then you hold the button and then you move it left or right to change (laughs) that thing. Could you imagine like programming an instrument? Fuck that. And, <laughs> and it's got this really early half music staff, half piano roll, weird thing, like nothing else I've ever seen on it. And it's just really early, like, you know, this is what you had back then. So I like to document those kind of systems and say, well, uh, let's try to make a track in them mm. and like use nothing but this gear. and and But then use that to tell the story of, well, you know, this was the stuff that was sold as the dream to the kids you know they couldn't afford something that was more than $50 and so there were things that were out there that were super cheap and super ghetto that people made tunes with you know this mm. was the homebrew market now you get something like garage band or like you know on a, even the stuff that comes with an ipad is hugely powerful you know
0: yep, totally and people are <laughs> And it's always been around homebrew.
1: Yeah, it's just that it's been around in these really odd iterations and no one really bothered to keep the stuff or really document it. So mm. that's my YouTube channel is looking, I guess, at a bunch of of that kind of stuff. Um,
0: yeah, I've watched a bunch yeah. of the videos on there, man. It's super interesting. I, I think the one I watched you like had a like a record or something and you're like sampling just like hits off a record onto some sort of tracking software and
1: Yeah, it was the, the Amiga Commodore Amiga. Yep.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great, yeah, it was a great video. Um, I showed it to my manager, and he was like, "What the hell? <laughs> it's like, what the fuck is this?" But yeah, it's inter- it's, it's funny, yeah, because I mean, like, most people, uh, yeah, they have no idea that like that's even possible. Like, because a lot of the producers these days, even fucking some of the really, really incredible producers, like, f- you know, 15 years old, and they like have no no idea what a Commodore 64 is. It's like, when they were born, they like had a Skype account when they were like three years old and shit. You know, it's like.
1: Yeah, and that barrier to entry that used to be around, you know, computer gear, like you used to get the magazines and stuff from the stores and they had all of this gear and things in and you'd read about it and know about it, but you could never afford it. You're like 12, 13 years old and you'd be subscribed to like, you know, your audio technology or your future music magazine and you'd be looking at this stuff like, wow, wow. You know, and learning all about it and reading about the orbital and like all of these, you know, g- groups and things that were out there, or like, um, uh, you know, if, there'd be a special on like the prodigy and their studio and all the stuff that's in. But, you know, you you were <laughs> on a paper round or not even doing that. You know, you might you like you had sixty dollars in your bank. I mean, the the cheapest thing available was like you know two thousand. Right. He's like, like now, like you just have a computer, and I guess that's the thing. Like you know, people have grown up, and it's kind of exciting that from a kid. They talk about, like, the old versions of Ableton in Windows 7 and LOL, you know, back in the day. Oh, do you remember Windows XP? (laughs) It's like, holy shit, it's it's hardly changed at all since that. Right. (laughs) Should have seen the 10 years before that, mate. It's like changed massively, you know. Right.
0: Well, uh, I'm yeah, pretty sure right, yeah. everyone listening to this is going to be like, listen to these fucking boomers. But like, <laughs> um.
1: <laughs> Well, it is a bit like that, but at the same time, I, I feel a lot of excitement and I, I love yeah. it. Like um, the fact that people are so in touch with their, their, um, their software because they've, they've always used it, you know? It's like riding a bike or something. It's like, you know, ever since a kid, they've been on that software and using it and so fluid and just into it. That's, that's wild. Totally. That's cool.
0: Yeah, man. I well, it's fucking awesome that you're like, uh, you know, you're there like preserving this information online in a sense where people can now access it on on a platform like YouTube rather than having to go digging for it on, you know, the Dogs on Acid forum or, like a, which I don't I don't even know if that exists anymore. Surely you can find it on the Wayback Machine or something, but. Um, yeah man, it's really awesome to to see that someone like you or a bunch of people out there are like still heavily engaged in this scene because yeah, whenever I look at stuff like that, it's like I would never dive into it personally myself probably, but but just watching it, I'm like, man, this is crazy, it's like impressive to to watch at least.
1: And it's, it's just an interesting, you know, I think people still have an interest in the history of stuff. Um, totally. But they they don't necessarily, they just want to see a 20-minute snapshot of how it worked, hmm. what it did, what it sounded like, roughly how it was used and the pros, especially, well, the cons of it. Like, you know, right. <laughs> you know, just, just let, like using it with a joystick, people <laughs> are like, that's crazy, you know. <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean, this might be, you know, Serum and Ableton one day when we're all making music in VR headsets and we all have neural links in our brains and stuff like that, and we're just thinking out music. And we're like, well, back in the day, you had to use these mouse and keyboards and like input MIDI notes into a piano roll. And <laughs> there'll be people in these VR headsets going like, "What the fuck?"
1: Well, have you played around? You played around with the VR headset stuff, yeah? And the music um, composing yeah. software, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating.
0: A, it's getting there. Yeah. It's not. It's not quite there yet, but.
1: Yeah, and and, it's, and I always wonder, like, is there a better, like, are we going to progress beyond the mouse and the keyboard and oh, a dude. Like,
0: Well, fucking, of course. I mean, like, at this point, you've got, like, these iPhones and iPads with, like, 10-point, like, finger gesticulation shit. And, like, yeah. there's, there's apps on my phone now where I can make music. And, like, I'm not very good at these apps, but I'm, like, I can tell, like, it's getting to go in the direction where this would be just a hundred times faster than making music on a computer. And I could do it on my phone, on an airplane, in AirPods, just like super easily. Like if I got good at it, you know?
1: So do you, do you think that the whole, I mean, I love the concept of the big style uh, tablets where you have like a, like a big screen and you can really get your fingers into it and like, you know, as you say, the multi-touch thing. Because I mean, with a mouse pointer, it's just like <laughs> it's the little thing that you, you zig around the screen, you know. Yeah. And whether you can jump to things instantly and like do you well, – I, I know some of the – like there was some early implementations of the controllers and things that could do that too. Do you, do you think that's really the future of where it's sort of going to go?
0: I mean, I think so. Like, I mean, how, how can a – I just don't see how a mouse and a keyboard is like more uh, agile than – being able to just, like, put 10 fingers on a screen at the same time and yep. move shit around, like, you know, with, like, there's so much more gesticulation there and so much more, like, stuff that you can be doing, you know, like pinch, pinching and stuff like that and moving stuff around and, like, scrolling up and down with just your finger and, like, like that to me just seems more, way more fluid. It's, we're just not used to it yet, right?
1: Yeah, even as a controller and performing... And using mm-hmm. stuff live. I mean, imagine, you know, two – I mean, you see people do it, but, you know, with two controls and things and every single finger and how – it's also pressure now
0: because yeah. they have
1: the whole pressure control. Totally. Which is a whole di- – another dimension.
0: Yeah, totally. It's,
1: it's just how do you build interfaces for that so that it, it works without the barrier to entry being too high, you know.
0: Right. Yeah, I think the next step beyond that would be like something like Neuralink, right, where you go and uh, get a piece of your skull removed and they put a little disc in there with a bunch of these like uh, probes. Like did you see that Neural Neuralink thing, the Elon Musk thing?
1: Oh, yeah, that goes in. Your, yeah.
0: Yeah, he's like, <sighs> well, just remove a small piece of your skull, essentially put like a coin, looks like, you know, a sub- 10-year sobriety coin or whatever, like, and then just like in your head and then off this coin, there's like a, you know, some, uh, fuck, what it like? I guess cables essentially that just like poke into your brain and they send electromagnetic signals or whatever into your brain and the whole thing like Bluetooth to a thing and it's like you you can just whatever send information to and from your brain directly, you know, there's no... The bandwidth is just getting... Like, because right now, we're almost cybernetic, right, as it is. It's like <clears throat> right now we're able to have our phone <clears throat> and do a bunch of shit. It's just the bandwidth between our thoughts and what we want to do and the phone and making it do
1: what and we want limited.
0: is limited. By our right? hand. yeah, our By our hand mm. and how fast we can do the thing and how fast the phone is and all that kind of shit and how fast it connects to the internet and all that crap. Like, this, there's a bunch of bottlenecks there. It's like once we just remove that bottleneck and that, that just goes in our head, then that bandwidth is just going to get like slower and, uh, sorry, smaller and smaller and to the point where it's just like, we're just thinking shit and shit happens.
1: And then you, you get to start thinking, but for me that I, I then go, well, like if it's thought control, what happens if you have like, you know, because your, your brain tends to wander and, you know, coming in and out and your mood changes and stuff, you know, how yeah. would that affect, is that going to deeply affect the performance like in terms of, you know, mm. if you're using neural, like how does it change your thoughts? And do you have to program yourself, like or like force yourself to think think in certain ways? And right.
0: It's probably the like, how be like would you a, battle with being
1: nervous. Yeah, exactly.
0: Hopefully there'd be a bunch of
1: like smart
0: filtering or something like that in the in the data that you know like takes whatever's coming in and goes like, all right, we, we know to ignore that data. <laughs>
1: Yeah, maybe there's a nervous mode or something that you put on that that sort of dampens out your thoughts and the way you're doing things.
0: (laughs) Yeah, right. You just tell it, like, oh, I'm feeling a little iffy today. Maybe just don't listen to me today or something.
1: (laughs) Yeah, go on the other five performances I've done and like sort of pick up the cues and then run with that data. Like, if, and maybe that's a thing, it's you end up with a refined performance or refined things whereby you know, you're doing things and it's taking your previous thoughts and your previous ways of doing things and falling back on those and making partial decisions for you, like based on and and preempting what you're going to do and preempting, setting things up, you know, in advance, especially if you're true. I mean, that's back to that whole, if you're going true live, like performance and or even composing, you know. You know where do you start making it where it 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 it's uh it helps you that and I guess that's where that whole AI thing is starting to do that. Um, where there's have you seen that image generation software where you can type in a specific series of
0: yeah 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 I'm a part of the Signal group. um, Oh wow yeah, you go in there and you just type in like forward slash imagine. And then whatever. So you can be like, imagine Elon Musk riding a rhinoceros or whatever. And then it goes like, you are number two in queue. And then it's like two minutes later, just sends it back to the signal chat. Yeah.
1: But, but, and it's like, it's a dog, you know, imagine, yeah, a dog riding a horse with a, you know, sword in Renaissance style, something saying, and you can get super specific, go, go. And it generates this amazingly. Now it's, but you thought of that idea. And that's the thing. I mean, I'm wondering like where, like, uh, you know, even like where your style and then the things that you pick based on what you like become you making something based on your preference. So that's your flavor and your signature, you know. Right. And Mm. I wonder if music's going to do that like at some point as well where you've got composing and you've got things where you can define parameters and get pre-generated slabs of music and sound but the, your sound and you as an artist is sort of how you go about that and maybe there is some neural connection to it as well so
0: here look you know,
1: I just said uh,
0: imagine oh you can barely see that um, wait can I ah oh, god damn it I said imagine C-tricks and it said you were number one in line started a new worker probably take like two minutes or something wait is that- yeah <laughs> Oh man, it's not. Yeah, Although but. is
1: it going to change it to Cytrix and not realise that like? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, we'll see what it on. Wow.
1: But yeah, I don't know. There's 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 some really crazy thoughts when it comes to like what is the future of interaction with like you know generating music and are we what are we going to use if we're using like trackers then piano roll and then uh, like keyboards and things now like what are we going to use in the future? Um, well, it's and just what's, been
0: whatever integrates more fluidly with the human body seems to be where it's going right it's like it yeah. used to be this thing where you used to have to write a punch a bunch of holes in a piece of paper and then feed a bit of paper yep. into a thing and then that would convert it into binary or whatever and and then it became you know keyboards and then it became you know uh voice activation software and now it's fucking watches it's like the technology if you just speed it up it's basically a thing that like wasn't there spawned and now is like jumping onto our body and climbing onto our face like that's essentially what's what's happening. If you just yep. speed up the the progression of, like, how technology has started interacting with humans in the last, like, hundred years.
1: <laughs> yeah. And there's, there's some things that, like, I always think that the, the whole piano roll thing was pretty clever. Even, like, the step sequencing. Um, it's really now, well, it became, I guess, two-dimensional. Like, originally on a drum machine you'd have one instrument at a time and then you'd have to pick which one and then you'd like programming I mean, if you've, you've used a 909 you, you know you they're just selecting it it's not hard to do but now we've just got that as a three as a like an extra axis you know we've got the vertical mm-hmm. axis as well and we can punch in vertical as well as horizontal for our time to, to build our beats so we've got that piano thing the piano roll thing and there's like to me it, it seems like that third dimension like adding that so that you've got another dimension just makes sense right. uh somehow um you know so you've got a cube of Composing rather than, but it's, and, and I guess that's your things like your parameters per note and your, you know, um, your levels and stuff by changing colors and things like that. That's another thing, but it's like how many more layers of things can we, and then can we make it so it's shapes or things in space where, especially if you're in VR and it's high res,
2: mm. where
1: it's the, the, even you're creating filters around the shapes of your, um, you know, your sounds and your individual notes. Maybe you're getting in there and changing a note like putty. And uh, depending on the sort of beanie, sort of weird shape of the things that you're making in space as you go, that's changing filters and changing the way your notes sound. Or maybe it's not, you know, it's it, I, I, well, you know, is is that and is that a viable input? You know, I really love that idea of of three D objects in space, like you know, just tweaking it, like the same same piano roll style, but you've just you're shaping literally with your your fingers or whatever the each yeah. note, and maybe you know, you, you, if the sharper and rougher it is, the more it's got a big bat buzz, like maybe it's con- converting to some FM operator that's doing something compared to sort of like roughly flattening it smoothing it off at one side. Maybe that's the right. way it's generating the sound. Like, um,
0: or you could just take any of those parameters and map them to whatever you want, right? You could be like... Yeah, right. exactly. Because, you know, maybe different people see sharp as sounding different to other people and smooth as sounding different to other people.
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm very curious. Like people do with MIDI controllers now, like you know, everybody yeah, exactly. sets up a MIDI controller differently.
0: Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, this thing finally spat out this image. It took like two minutes. Um, I'll send it to you after. It's kind of hard to see, but like, yeah, it's. A, uh, yeah, you can't really see it. I'll send it to you. But um, hilarious.
1: So they're actually <laughs> allowing people's specific tags in now, because didn't they dehuman yeah. it at some point, uh, so you couldn't put people's names in? No. Well, I mean, see, so it yeah, just takes know. the internet. Takes
0: whatever, yeah, and it just like Googles shit and just figures it out. (laughs) Yeah, it's crazy. Also, yeah, it's insane. I'll send you a link to the signal group and you can. Yeah, amazing. Well, hey, man, um, thanks a ton for coming on here. I I really appreciated your time and this chat has been really interesting. And um, yeah, it was really cool. I just got randomly got an email from someone and they were just like, hey, you should get C Tricks on. And I was like, I know that guy. (laughs) Maybe we should. Yeah. So, yeah, I really appreciate you coming on.
1: Yeah, no worries. It's um it's been an absolute joy. I mean, it is morning here, so I'm I'm a little bit morning brain, but uh yep. yeah. <laughs> it's been it's been a pleasure. Brain. And look, I gotta say congrats on the um on the podcast 'cause there's been some absolutely fantastic content. And certainly through lockdown. I mean I, I caught the odd one and it was just great that you tackled some of the you know the hard issues and and talk it was just some great content. So, you know, thanks for carrying the, the torch for, for oh, electronic course. musicians. Of
0: course, man, yeah. And yeah, I think having you on is just um it's another, just another piece of great content for people because, yes, yeah, I haven't had anyone on actually who's, who does the things that you do really. I think the closest might be Richard Devine or something, but, yeah, not even similar really.
1: Well, it's my, my promise I'm going to get out there and record a bunch of this stuff at some point. I think I've got to drop that thing of, uh, of getting too caught up on the mastering and mixing process <laughs> and just dump a bunch of it out there. So There's about 100 tracks hopefully coming in the next couple of years. so
0: <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm sure a bunch of people would appreciate it. Um, in the meantime, uh, where can people check you out? The, the, you have the Debug Live YouTube channel?
1: Yeah, the D- Debug Live YouTube channel's got a bunch of historical content. I haven't made anything for a while, but I've got plans to put new stuff up soon. So
0: Yeah, and yeah. what about if people want to listen to your music? What's the best way?
1: Um, the best way is actually, oh, without digging through um, console-specific things, um, there's a little bit on SoundCloud. Um uh, but I guess, uh, I'm trying to think where it is. There's a lot on compilations on Bandcamp. Um, there's quite a few stuff that I've, got, just things like, I've done. So are like just ctricks.bandcamp.com or something. So you said, yes, C-T-R-I-X. Yeah, I should go and actually make a link to all the comps and things that I've got tracks on because that would yeah. make it a lot easier. <laughs> oh, yeah, dude. But there is ctrix.net, so I might go up and, and chuck a list of, of stuff up there in the next few hours so people can link to it. Perfect, man. All right, well, thank you so much no ice anytime
0: yo what's up thanks for listening to the Mr. Bill podcast this show is produced and edited by Robert Fumo you can get early access to the show by going to my website mrbillstunes.com and paying me instead of Patreon and remember to go rate and review on iTunes or I'm going to come to your house and punch your dog in the throat upper deck your toilet and fuck your partner note i may or may not do those last couple of things uh you should probably just go rate it on itunes or spotify or whatever it is that you listen to the podcast on because it really helps the podcast um but but just know that that it'll go a long fucking way to me not doing those things if you do go do that so uh, just just put that out there